0: Good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, let's open those up to Acts chapter 19, please. Acts chapter 19, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 10 this morning. So it's been a minute since we've had the opportunity to be together. The weather decided to freak out. It seemed like every Friday night for Last three weeks really, uh, but I'm glad that we were able to come together and uh, get here safely today. And the last time we were together, we were finishing up Acts chapter 18. Uh, we were seeing the tail end of Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, so throughout that chapter, we hear about Paul uh, coming to the end of that journey by planting uh, a church in Corinth. Uh, and it's in this process that Luke introduces us to a couple named Aquila and Priscilla who were believers from Italy that had uh, fled Rome because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave. And Paul met this couple and a friendship was developed whereby Paul was allowed to stay at their place. He was allowed to work for them um, because they had uh, a similar business to what he was used to doing, he was making tents. And so they had a personal relationship and a business relationship. Uh, and we were told that Paul stayed in Corinth uh, for about a year and a half, convincing many of the Jews and Gentiles that Jesus was the Messiah, and that to be saved from uh, their sin and to be restored in a relationship with God the Father, they had to accept salvation offered uh, through his life, death, and resurrection. And uh, once it was time to go, Paul leaves and heads to Syria, and he takes Priscilla and Aquila with him. They travel with him all the way to Ephesus, uh, which is where Paul was originally trying to get at the beginning of his uh, second missionary journey. If you'll remember, way back when, uh, Paul was trying to go to the the people of Asia, and the Holy Spirit wouldn't let him go. He tried, I think, three times, and the Holy Spirit kept telling him no, and then in a dream, he had uh, a vision that he was supposed to go to Macedonia and so Ephesus and the people in that area were off limits to him until uh this time and so he gets to go there at the tail end of this um, but he's making his way back home to the church in Antioch which was his ascending church uh, and during that brief time in Ephesus he drops Priscilla and Aquila off in Ephesus they stay there as he goes on and while they're there they encounter an Alexandrian named Apollos all right according to Luke He was an eloquent man who was competent in the use of the scriptures. Luke says that he was fervent in the spirit and he accurately taught about the things of Jesus uh, even though he only knew John's baptism. And he's speaking boldly. He's going into the synagogue, debating with the Jews there uh, when Aquila and Priscilla encounter him and they realize that there's something missing from what he's teaching the people about in the synagogues. So he's accurately portraying the things of Christ, but apparently there was something that he was missing, and so that he wouldn't continue lacking in what he was teaching, they approach him and they give him the, the information that he is currently lacking in his current education about the things of God. And so we saw uh, some interesting things there with the humility of Apollos and being this eloquent and well-educated man who was willing to be corrected by these people, you saw a conviction of uh, Priscilla and Aquila as they were willing to approach him and correct him and make sure that he was telling the things that were necessary uh, for the people to hear. Uh,
1: and so we see a love for
0: God, a love for God's word, and a love for God's people in that relationship that was built there. Uh, and then we get to see that uh, Luke tells us that Paul leaves Ephesus in verse 22 chapter 18 he goes to Caesarea, and then it says he goes up to Jerusalem, and then to ascending church in Antioch. Verse 23 says he stays there for some time, and then he sets right back out again on his third missionary journey, uh, as he goes from place to place, strengthening all the disciples. It's just impossible for Paul to sit still for very long. He has gospel work to do, and it just tears him up not to be doing it. So he just, he's on the go all the time, I think we said that it was like 2,000 miles that he had walked, uh, and 1,000 miles he had sailed by boat throughout this second missionary journey. And so he had walked from like Raleigh, North Carolina, to Denver, Colorado, uh, just going around telling people about the gospel. That doesn't include the boat rides. And so he is passionate about the things of God. He's passionate about playing churches, and he's passionate about building up the disciples that he has made in the process of going uh, before that. Which brings us to chapter 19. All right. In our passage this morning, we're going to see that Paul, on his third missionary journey, it says he has traveled back through the interior region and he's made his way back to Ephesus. And right. he told the people there during his brief visit, they wanted him to stay longer. And he said, I'll come back if God allows it." Well, it seems like God does indeed allow it because Paul is going to make his way to Ephesus. Uh, so let's read the first ten, chap- 10 verses of chapter 19 and see what Paul's getting into in Ephesus. Follow along with me as I read this. It says there, while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior regions and came to Ephesus. He found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? No, they told him, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So into what were you baptized then, he asked them. Into John's baptism they replied. Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people that they should believe in the one who would come after him, that is in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began to speak in tongues and to prophesy. Now there were about twelve men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly over a period of three months, arguing and persuading them about the kingdom of God." But when some became hardened they would not believe, slandering away in front of the crowd, he withdrew from them, taking the disciples, and conducted discussions every day in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. All right, so Paul has made his way back to Ephesus. He wanted to stay there in the beginning, uh, but had... uh, An agenda that couldn't be uh, knocked off, and so he kept going back to Antioch. So he's back here now on this third missionary journey, and in the process of arriving there, he finds some disciples. And we're not told anything about these disciples uh, by Luke, except that they had not received the Holy Spirit when they believed. Uh, And I'm going to put believed in quotation marks at this point, and I'll explain why later. Uh, and when Paul brought it up, they said they didn't know that there was a Holy Spirit. They wanted to know if the Holy Spirit had uh, come to them once they believed, and they said they didn't know that there was a Holy Spirit. And so Paul asks, uh, into what were you baptized? And they say, John's baptism. And Paul points out that John's baptism pointed to something else. It's pointed to a person, and that person is Jesus. And it says that when the 12 disciples hear this, they're baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul then lays his hands on them, and they begin speaking in tongues uh, and prophesying as the Holy Spirit falls on them. And then Paul does his Pauline thing where he goes into the synagogue and debates with them back and forth for three months until the people become hard-hearted and they begin slandering the away, uh, which is the, how Paul, Luke refers to uh, the Christian faith, the way. Uh, before the crowds, and when that happens, he goes to the lecture hall of he stays there for two years. Uh, Luke says that in that time, all the residents of Asia, both the Jews and the Greeks, had heard the word of the Lord. And I mean, we can hope that what Luke is saying there is absolutely true, that every single one of the Asians, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord, but it's probably more uh, hyperbolic language there. Uh, and when we look at this, we see these 10 verses, and you may be even wondering, why did you stop there? There's, there's nothing happening in these 10 verses. I mean, we have a two-year time period that's summarized in three verses. So Luke just he's like, and, and two, two years happened. The end. And that's all we get to know is that Paul was debating with people in the Hall of Tyrannus during that time. Um, but most of what we're hearing about here involves a conversation between Paul and some obscure disciples that he meets in Ephesus. And so as you're reading through this, like if you're following along with me as we go through and you're reading this, you may be tempted to just breeze through these verses without giving it a second thought. But what if I told you that this passage right here is actually one that many charismatic believers have put a ton of emphasis on and they think about this passage all the time uh, because of what they believe it implies regarding to the baptism of the holy spirit right we hear that and as baptists we may not give it a second thought We're like okay i don't know what that is but it is what it is and we'll just keep moving forward but in charismatic circles this is a big deal they long for and search for this idea of being baptized by the Holy Spirit and in its most simple form the charismatic doctrine regarding the baptism of the Holy Spirit states that when a believer first speaks in tongues and or prophesies is the moment that they have been baptized in the Holy Spirit and so there is a separation oftentimes between their salvation and when they actually get baptized In the Holy Spirit. In their understanding, if you haven't spoken tongues yet, then you haven't been baptized with the Holy Spirit. You don't have the Holy Spirit at that point. They will point to this passage as the proof text for this whole doctrine. So the people that hold to this view, they'll generally say that Paul came across some believers, right? It called them disciples. They didn't say believers, right? And that's weird because Luke in the previous passage, was talking about disciples, and he meant believers. Right? So, but a disciple is just a student. It's just a follower. And so, just because the the word disciple is used doesn't mean that it means an actual disciple of Jesus. But, we do have that same word, and it was used, what appears to be, in my view, two different ways, just one chapter apart. And so, he asks those believers in Ephesus, he says, when you received, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we don't even know, what is the Holy Spirit? I didn't know that that such a thing existed. What? Who is the Holy Spirit? And so Paul preaches to them, lays hands on them. They put their faith in Jesus, or I guess continue their faith in Jesus. He lays hands on them, and they come to faith, and they receive the Holy Spirit. Um, and from that... From what they read right here in these really seven verses, uh, they determine that everyone can have an experience like this where the Holy Spirit will fall on them and everyone will speak in tongues. Right now, you should notice that I am saying they, them, uh, because the the reason I'm doing that is because I am not one of these or they. I do not believe that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a separate event that happens after our salvation. Um, I believe that the baptism of the Holy Spirit occurs at the moment of salvation when God places a believer in union with Christ and with the church. Right? In that moment, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells us. Right? We're sealed into the family and kingdom of God uh, and we become the temple of the Holy Spirit. Right? We don't have to go to any particular holy place because we are the holy place. We have God residing in us from the moment of our salvation. Um, After our salvation, there may be some people who are given the, the spiritual gift of tongues and prophecy, right? But I don't think it's the normal fruit that's given to everyone like we see in Galatians 5. In Galatians 5, we see Paul talking about the fruit of the Spirit, and in that, it's love, patience, gentleness, kindness, goodness, self-control. You know, those types of things are what we see as the fruit of the Spirit. All believers, when we come to faith, experience a change in our relationship with sin, in our relationship with one another, in our relationship with God. And so we begin to exhibit these fruit of the Spirit. But I don't believe that prophecy or speaking in tongues is a common gift That has been given. It's just something that God gave to some for the edification of the church. Right. So with that said, I do not believe that this is a gospel issue. All right. This is not a salvation issue. Meaning that people can believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Right. They can believe that that is a separate event that happens later after salvation. Um, and i can still call them a brother and sister in christ i know people who hold this view that we have solid theological conversations we agree on a lot and we certainly agree on all the gospel or else i wouldn't call them a brother and sister in christ but this is an issue that we don't agree on and i can still be in relationship with them i can still do ministry with them and so this is not a gospel issue. It's not a first-order issue. first-order issue we hold close-handed. If you don't believe these things that we hold tightly here, you're not a Christian. right? And then we've got some other issues that we hold open-handed, secondary issues, that you know, we see in Scripture. We say, no, we're pretty, we're pretty sure this is right. And someone goes, I don't really believe that, I believe this, and then we can still be in relationship. And then there's the tertiary issues that are just so on the fringe that it really doesn't even matter how we feel about that, right? What type of music we listen to or order of service or things like that, completely tertiary things, right? But what I do believe about this is if you do have this understanding that the baptism of the Holy Spirit comes later after salvation, you are experiencing an improper interpretation of Scripture. Right, so, I mean, I'm not going to fight you over it, but I am going to disagree with you, and I've got reasons to back that up. Uh, and I want to provide my reasons for that so that you guys, if you ever get into that conversation, might be able to uh, think through this well uh, if you've never thought of it before. And so number one, my first reason why I think this is a misinterpretation of Scripture to believe that baptism of the Holy Spirit happens later is that these type of Pentecostal moments are not the normal occurrence that happen when people come to faith. Right, we're in chapter 19 in the book of Acts. There have been many, many people who have come to faith. Uh, we saw the Holy Spirit fall, and the disciples, they speak in tongues in Acts chapter 2. Right, that's the first time this happened. Right, it happened again when the Gentiles believed in Acts chapter 10, right, with Cornelius and Cornelius' house. We saw the Holy Spirit fall, and now we see it again happening in Acts chapter 19 when the gospel has made its way to Asia, right? But we have heard of the conversion of many other people throughout the book of Acts, uh, all the way up to Acts chapter 19, and they have come to faith in Christ, and there is no mention whatsoever that they have spoken in tongues or had any other supernatural manifestations of the Spirit after they came to faith. Right? I mean, you think about the Ethiopian eunuch, right? I mean, Philip may have appeared out of nowhere disappeared out of nowhere, but the eunuch didn't experience anything supernatural in and of himself. Right? So we don't see anywhere else in Scripture these supernatural manifestations of the gifts of the Spirit immediately Um, And so I think that it's not a good idea, it's not a good practice of biblical interpretation to take these uncommon occurrences and try to make them into mainstream theological doctrines. It's just not a good idea. As I've said, these Pentecost-esque moments are an exclamation point to the process of the gospel going forth in a place that has never been preached before, that's never been taught before, and look, you, if you came to me and said, look, we've gone into this people group who has never had any uh, aspect of the gospel preached to them, and all of a sudden our missionaries started speaking in tongues and started laying out prophecy, I to mean, praise the Lord, I, amen, amen, I could absolutely see that, wouldn't have any problem whatsoever accepting that, because I see characteristics of that in scripture. Right? A new door has opened, and all of a sudden, God puts the exclamation point on the process. Right, and He does that with the speaking of tongues and prophecy. And here, in Acts 19, the gospel is making its way into Asia, which before, Paul was kept from going there by the Holy Spirit. So this occurrence could be God affirming that Paul is where he needs to be. Right? The gospel hasn't been here before. Paul's there. The, the kingdom is growing and spreading, and this is God putting his stamp of approval right here saying, Yes and Amen, move forward with the kingdom. So that's reason number one. Reason number two is that the command to be baptized with, in, or by the Spirit isn't found anywhere else in Scripture, except for in this one passage right here. Right? Along with that, there not any other place in scripture where believers are encouraged to seek the baptism of the holy spirit so if this was a part of our edification if this were a part of our sanctification we're growing in our faith and you would think that somebody somewhere would have said hey believer young believer immature believer to be mature in your faith you have to go forward you have to find maturity so that you can get this baptism of the holy spirit and you'll know that it's happened when you spoke in tongues, right? But we see none of that. It kind of goes along with number one, but the nuances of it are a little bit different. All right, we don't see anything like what's happening here anywhere else in Scripture. And it's important that we let the Bible interpret the Bible. All right, we, we, we go, when we have something that's complicated, we try to expand that out to the things that are easier to understand. And work our way back into these more difficult places, right? If we want to, we can proof text our way into making the Bible say whatever we want to. Anything. Right? If we uh, cherry pick verse after verse out of the Bible, we can change the, and don't make any use of the context. We can make whatever argument we want from Scripture. My personal favorite is Psalm 127, verse 2, which says, In vain you get up early and stay up late working hard to have enough food. Yes, he gives sleep to the one he loves. Right? So if I get up early to work hard or stay up late to work hard, I do it in vain. So I shouldn't do those things. Right? Picked out of context, this means that I should work less and sleep more because God loves me. Amen. <laughs> right? When we look at it in its proper context, though, the psalmist is saying that if we work against what God is doing, then we do our work in vain. Right? So if God's not in it, then getting up early to work, to go to work, staying up late to finish work—it doesn't matter. God's not going to bless it. Right? Crew texting Bible verses is how we get to the point where people believe that God is okay with sin because God is love. Right? It's there. We can find it. We can point it. And and people do. But they skip all the other parts about God's righteousness, his wrath, his judgment, all of that because they've got one verse that says God is love. Or because God is all-powerful and all-knowing, that he is actually the author of our sin. I've heard people make that argument. You find verses that talk about some of the attributes of God. They completely ignore the other attributes of God. So when you rip this stuff out of context, you can make whatever argument from Scripture that you want. And so these things obviously aren't true. But if we don't interpret Scripture correctly, we can find verses that will back up our preconceived notions of who God is. We essentially make... God in our own image, instead of having that the other way around. And we get to approach God's kingdom any way we want to. Right? We can find it in Scripture. And so given what the rest of the Bible says about the Holy Spirit, namely that every believer has the Holy Spirit residing within them, and if anyone doesn't have the Holy Spirit residing within them, then they're not a Christian. And given the fact that no other passages talks about us Pursuing baptism of the Holy Spirit, we shouldn't be too quick to jump to the conclusion that there is a later baptism of the Holy Spirit that we should be waiting for. And lastly, number three, given how Luke presents this, I don't think the disciples were Christians yet. I think they were close. I think they were knocking at the door, but I don't think that they had walked through the door of salvation at this point. Just first off, as I said, the Bible says that all believers have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. From the moment that the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit's presence has been with every believer who has ever believed since that moment forward. Right here are a couple passages. Again, if we don't, I want to look at the broader uh, context here. So I uh, put the verses on your uh, worship guide. Mark chapter 1, verses 4 to 8 says john came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins the whole judean countryside and all the people of jerusalem were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the jordan river confessing their sins john wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and while hunting he proclaimed one who is more powerful than i am is coming after me i am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of the sandals I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say he will eventually baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He says he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus speaking in John 14, verses 15 through 17, says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor who will be with you forever. He is the Spirit of Truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. He will be. You know him because he is in you and will remain with you forever. First Corinthians 12, 12 and 13. It says, For just as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many, are one body also, so is Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. We were all given one spirit to drink. Ephesians 1, 13 to 14 says, In him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. You were sealed when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. So in that moment, you received the Holy Spirit, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit. Verse 14 says the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. Ephesians 4, 4-6 says there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope and your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Ephesians 4, verse 30, it says, And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. You are sealed in the Holy Spirit at the moment that you come to faith. And so with this in mind, given that they did not yet possess the Holy Spirit at this point in the kingdom's progression throughout the book of Acts, this indicates to me that they're not yet believers in Christ. Right? They may have been moved by all the messages of John the Baptist, they may have even been led to remorse for their sin, which led to repentance of a certain kind. Uh, and so they were probably even baptized into that baptism of repentance, John's baptism. But I don't think that conversion happens yet. Right? Just because you feel guilty about your sin doesn't make you a Christian. right? Like We are built in with this knowledge of right and wrong because we are created in the image of God. And so when we sin against God, there is something in us that goes, ooh, I shouldn't have done that. And we know we shouldn't have done that. And we'll justify it. But if someone does it against us, we get so outraged because of the injustice of it all that it just goes to show we do really know what is right and wrong. Right? And so... Feeling guilty about that doesn't make them a Christian. There's there's so many stories that I hear where people were either guilted into salvation or uh, made afraid not to be saved. Right, so you either pour the guilt on them, say you know you're a horrible person, you've done all this stuff, you should repent, you evil sinner, and and make things right. And so they feel so bad about the things that they've done. They want to do something about that. And so they do. They come up, they pray a uh, sinner's prayer, and there may be no heart change about that. It just may be remorse. Or they're afraid, right? you got the guy slamming the Bible down on the table talking about all you evil sinners are going to hell, and you better get your stuff together, because if not, you're going to burn. And, well, I mean, who, who wants to do that? Not me. I, what do I got to do? Just come up here and say that prayer. Alright, I'll pray that prayer. Absolutely. Get out of hell free card. We're good to go. And then all of a sudden, a few years later, when people are actually explaining the gospel to people, they're actually having conversations, discipleship is actually occurring, they realize, I I was never saved. I was guilted into a response. I was made afraid and came to a response. And that wasn't real. It, It happens all the time. So just feeling a feeling doesn't make you a Christian. The way that Paul speaks to them here about being baptized into Jesus indicates to me that they had not yet responded to the gospel. Because if they're like, we didn't know that there was a Holy Spirit, then why would he just go into the doctrine of the Holy Spirit? No, he says, you, you don't have the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you about Jesus. Right? If it, if it was believers, they understood everything they needed to know about Christ then why would the conversation not go to the Holy Spirit? Instead it goes to Christ. And so I believe that they had not yet believed because Paul shared the gospel with them when that happened and they believed then they received this powerful display of the baptism of the Holy Spirit which was at the moment of their salvation. At the actual moment of their salvation. And so, you may be sitting here again thinking, why does this matter? Why does this matter? Right? You said just a few minutes ago that this isn't a gospel issue, that we don't need to be fighting people about this because it's not an issue about salvation, so why even talk about it? Well, First of all, it's very important that that we understand the role of the Holy Spirit in our life. Right? We need to know what the Holy Spirit does—that's a person. It's not a thing. It's a person. It's the third member of the Trinity, the Godhead. That is God, and God has effect on our life. He comes to dwell within us. We need to understand that role of the third person of the Trinity uh, and what it means when He becomes a part of our life. Like this is important. Right? We shouldn't just make stuff up about how this happens or when it happens uh, because we have uh, misinterpreted scripture. And we should be waiting for some supernatural experience to occur before we understand that the Holy Spirit is already a part of our lives if we have put our faith in Jesus. This is his temple. This is where God dwells now. So that happens from the moment that we move from death to life. The Holy Spirit comes and dwells in us. And is a part of our life, he seals us forever as a down payment to the inheritance that we're going to get in the future. Right? And the second reason that this is important to talk about is if we don't learn how to properly interpret Scripture to the best of our ability, then we're going to be prone to wander away from faith. Right? We will make the Bible say whatever we want it to say in order that we can have those... Uh, our own proclivities, whether that even be, it might not be a sinful proclivity, it might just be uh, the fact that we want everyone to feel the love of God and not feel the judgment of God. And so we may filter that through, you know, our messages may have zero information about sin in and just how much God loves you and how much he wants to give you a spiritual high-five and how much he wants you to have your best life now. Right? But there's more to it than that. God does love you. He loved you enough to send his sons die on the cross to cover your sin that earns you condemnation and wrath forever. And so if you don't put the two of those, two, those things together, the cross makes no sense. Right? If God is love, why would he have his son murdered? That doesn't make any sense. So you can't take this stuff out of context. We have to have a right, proper, biblical interpretation of of what the Bible says, like this idea of what, this is what it means to me, it doesn't matter what the Bible means to you, right? You take what the Bible means and you apply it to your life. Now, you may have a variety of different ways to apply it to your life, right? When God says to love your neighbor, that may look different for me than it does for you because we have different neighbors, right? But when he says to love your enemies, What that doesn't mean is that you get it passed because your enemies are worse than anybody else's enemies. Right? What that meant to me was I shouldn't give them, you know, the, the wrong finger as I'm driving by their house. right? As long as I don't do that, I'm good. No, no. It said, love your enemy. Love them. Lay yourself down for them in the same way that Christ laid them down for you. It doesn't matter what that means to you. You may apply it differently. Because your enemies are going to be different than my enemies. But we are to love our enemies. Right? That's not open for interpretation. Right? The Bible has one proper interpretation. And admittedly, it's not always easy to understand. That's why we go back, when we hit the hard stuff, we go back to the easy stuff. And we start working our way in until we maybe get into those muddy waters. And, then hopefully those, the, and typically, when we get into the muddy waters, it's for these issues, not these. These issues are clear. That first-tier gospel issue that we can have no differing views about, God has made that very clear in Scripture. Most of the time, the muddy stuff, the stuff that we're not real sure about, maybe it's this, maybe it's that, it's often the secondary and even the tertiary issues that we shouldn't be arguing about anyway. They're not that important. They're not gospel-centered issues. You have got people lost, dying, and going to hell, and we're over here arguing about the nuances of salvation. Does God save people? Yes. Go get to work. Go do something with that knowledge. Does God send people to hell if they don't respond in faith? Yes. Go do something. Right? Get to work. We've got to stop arguing about the stuff that's not of first importance. But we can't know the stuff of first importance if we don't know how to interpret a Bible. We have to be in it, we have to know how to read it, we have to know how to see through the arguments that sound, and that could be true, but what about this, what about this, what about this? We have to be able to have independent thought and not just believe what somebody else has told us. We can't do that if we don't interpret the Bible well, all right? So, we have to strive to have the proper understanding of what we are reading, all right? So, let's break that. Father, it's my desire that we would be people of the book, that we would be reading it and striving to understand it, that we would um, wrestle with the difficult notions in there, and that when we find ourselves butting up against a difficult idea that goes against the things that we want to believe, that we would change what we believe to match your holy word. God, I pray that we would have the ability to properly interpret scripture. Lord, we're grateful that the Holy Spirit offers that for us, helps us discern what's right and what's wrong, what's true and what's not. And so Lord, I pray that we would lean into that relationship uh, realizing that this is is you residing in us and this is an opportunity uh, to cash in a little bit of the inheritance that we have coming for us in the future by being in your presence now. Lord, help us to realize that. Help us not be waiting for some sort of supernatural event to happen uh, so that before we begin engaging with the Holy Spirit in our life. then help us to change our hearts so that we think about the important things uh, of the gospel, of the scriptures, and that we are not people who are fighting over nitpicky stuff, secondary and tertiary issues. Help us to be people that are that have our focus on the mission and pursue that mission with everything that we have. I ask all this in your son's precious name.